welcome to the Alliant in the Public Eye podcast, a show dedicated to exploring risk management topics and challenges faced by today's public sector leaders. Here are your hosts, Carlene Patterson and Justin Swarbrick. Hi, this is Carlene Patterson and Justin Swarbrick, and welcome everyone to today's podcast where we are tackling one of the most challenging aspects in the insurance market. That's right. If you are a public entity and are a buyer of liability insurance, there's there's a really good chance that you've already felt this volatility. And if for some reason you've been able to escape it, then this is going to be a timely message because the market's changing quickly, it's changing fast, and that's not likely going to change here in the near future. Yeah, so joining us today is someone that uh, Justin and I have worked with for quite a few years. Um, He's one of the great pillars in the industry when it comes to liability insurance for public entities. And so please welcome Kevin Williams, who is the division manager for Genesis Public Entity Group. Welcome, Kevin. Well, thanks, guys. It's, uh, It's good to be with you today. Good to have you. So this is a topic that's really hitting close to home for you being with an insurance carrier and for us on the front lines working with our clients. And we're looking forward to talking to you today and share a little bit about Genesis um, and what your role is in the organization. Sure, Uh, Carlene, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm the division manager for Genesis. Genesis is involved primarily uh, in the casualty lines uh, for public entities, uh, K through 12 and higher education clients across the nation. Uh, my role as division manager is to uh, oversee the, uh, the operations uh, for uh, Genesis, which is part of general reinsurance, uh, and hopefully along the way to stay out of the way of uh, a talented group of uh, eight underwriters uh, on team who do the day-to-day work and, uh, and keep me on the straight and narrow. So Genesis works with a couple of different segments within public entities. So you do K through 12, municipal business. I know you work higher ed. Are there other segments of the industry that you're intimately familiar with? Well, in the public entity space, that also includes uh, county special district pools, uh, anything really with a uh, public entity flavor. And in particular, those organizations that uh, have formed uh, pools or mutuals or similar organizations under state statutes. So we've had a long and and, uh, storied and and historical, if you will, uh, presence in that space. And it's one that, uh, well, we intend to be in for, for decades to come. So for our listeners, when we're talking about the liability market and not only in general what's happening, but when we're talking specifically about public entities, we're touching on a lot of the different um, pieces of what we consider public entity and uh, how it's impacting, whether you have police professional or, um, you know, educated legal or what have you, we'll be talking about it today. That sounds great. So Kevin, as as we, as we dig deeper into this liability market, it's interesting you, you mentioned the pools, and and we know that you work a lot with those types of organizations. But it really does seem that we are in the hardest market since the '80s, when those public entity pools were created, and and I think by all standards, those have been a huge success. But what do you think is the biggest factor 
in today's world on why we're experiencing such a hard market, specifically for liability insurance? Well, Justin, that's a uh, that's actually a great question. You're right. Uh, in the '80s, when many of the public entity pools and mutuals formed around the nation, it was a direct response to an evaporating market and uh, difficult and pricey capacity. Today, a little bit different situation, uh, but there are some similarities. You know, we've been, by all accounts, really in a soft or stable to soft market since about 2005 until just recently. So a, a fairly extended period of attractive pricing, uh, favorable terms, favorable conditions. I think we noticed, at least in, in Genesis, and I think this is likely true for the remainder of the industry, we began to notice some significant changes along about the 2014-2015 timeframe. Uh, really, if you think back on it, 2014, was when we began to see the headlines emerge, particularly coming out of things like the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, uh, Missouri. Uh, and then we began to see sort of the Penn State Jerry Sandusky sexual abuse scandal uh, take hold. And shortly thereafter, uh, the emergence of the hashtag MeToo movement. And so all of these things sort of conspired, if you will, to create and, and foster what's commonly referred to today as social inflation. Uh, those uh, factors began to concurrently put a lot of pressure on underwriting results. You know, it wasn't uh, too many years ago that the public entity space from an underwriter's perspective was relatively stable. The underwriting results could be counted on generally, some variation, of course, you know, year after year. But again, 2014, 2015, the last five years or so, that began to change uh, dramatically. After recognizing the impact of social inflation on underwriting results, I think the industry was also confronted with the realization that some of our pricing models uh, over the over the years have not uh, held up as well as we would have expected. You know, pricing models, particularly those based on data actuarial pricing models, are generally backward looking and based on historical results. And that works as long as the environment is stable. But when you are faced with a situation where there is systemic or deep change uh, in a market space, those models become less predictive, less stable, if you will. And I think that's what we've recognized. No more, no more true, rather, than particularly in excess uh, liability layers where it's notoriously difficult to project and predict pricing needs in higher layers anyway, but in an unstable or changing environment, that, that particular instability is just really uh, ramped up, really exacerbated. So that, that's been, that, that's been a, a challenge uh, as well. You know, the, the bottom line though is I think carriers uh, in general, we're just, uh, as we sometimes are, slow to recognize the dynamic changes taking place in an environment and working those into underwriting and pricing models. And as a result, underwriting results began to deteriorate. And what you get when that happens is sort of the snapback effect, the rubber band effect, when the market finally realizes that after several years, the business has not been underwritten and priced appropriately. And, and there's a, a response to that, that that can be kind of painful. Yeah, I... I read a quote in, in one of the big publications that Stephen Catlin said, the situation is quite simple. 
Insurers have significantly underpriced casualty insurance for the last 10 years. And I think that just sums up exactly what you're saying. But quite frankly, I don't know if anybody could blame them and, and the actuaries and the underwriters. We've just seen such an ex exponential increase in the size of claims in jury verdicts and settlements that it would have been nearly impossible to predict, even if you did start building this into your underwriting models back in 2014, 15, and 16. And when we look at these verdicts or settlements that we're seeing, these nuclear verdicts, as they say, they, we just seem to be seeing them more and more. And there has to be something that's contributing to that. If you could speak to that a little bit, I think that would be really helpful yeah, Justin, I mean, you're right in terms of seeing the severity increase uh, over the past few years. And all we really have to do to, to verify that is read a few headlines uh, in the public entity space uh, and, and know that to be true. A good example uh, are two hot button issues, I think, uh, for the space today, and that is police liability claims and, of course, sexual abuse and molestation related claims. And when the police liability claims I mentioned earlier that we, we sort of saw the, uh, the sea change begin, if you will, and this is a little simplistic, but I think begin really uh, 2014 with the Michael Brown shooting, that particular uh, claim settled, family settled with the uh, town of Ferguson, Missouri in 2017 for a million and a half dollars. Now, that's a, a large number, but not, not in comparison to what we've seen in more recent years. Following that, you might recall that we saw the Freddie Gray uh, uh, wrongful death claim. That was a death in police custody involving police officers in the city of Baltimore. That settled for $6.4 million. Fast forward to uh, 2017, and we have the disturbing and unfortunate shooting of Justine Ruzik in Minneapolis. That case settled in 2019 for approximately $20 million. And of course, most recently, uh, just this past September, was the settlement of the Breonna Taylor shooting uh, in Louisville. Uh, that uh, was a $12 million settlement, plus some promises uh, by the police department to institute reforms in Louisville. The interesting thing about that case uh, and I think this also points to how difficult it is in this current environment, is that went from date of incident to date of civil settlement in, in roughly seven months. Right. Which for, for a settlement that size is really large. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is, are, are these the new bar, Kevin? I mean, you, you talk about the Michael Brown case in 2017, it settled. That that wasn't even three years ago, and now we're talking twelve times, twenty times that amount for some more recent incidents. Justin, I think you're actually uh, correct in that. I, I don't know about the new bar, but we are certainly seeing uh, much more uh, community uh, support for larger settlements and speed to settlement. Uh, to to get these uh, these terrible and tragic incidents resolved. And I think there are a, a few things that are driving that. First of all, you know, we certainly have the presence of uh, social media as well as the, the regular media 
that uh, keep this front and center uh, at very rapid speeds following uh, the, the, the actual uncovering or discovery of the incident. But I think beyond that, there are some macro issues that we are recognizing today. Uh, one of those, for example, uh, jury makeup uh, or prospective uh, jury makeup. Today, uh, millennials are making up uh, much more of the jury pool or prospective jury pool than they ever have uh, in the past. You know, it's interesting, but um, last year, millennials uh, became the largest subgroup of adults, living adults in the United States, surpassing boomers uh, for the yeah. first time. So what we're seeing now is our, our folks born between, say, 1981 and 1996 uh, being on those prospective jury pools. Uh, and with that, they bring a new set of values, a new set of expectations, some disenchantment and disenfranchisement. I think a second aspect that influences uh, where we're seeing uh, both verdicts and settlements go today is this entire idea of wealth or income disparity uh, in our country. Um, there is a growing and continually growing disparity in our nation between the haves and the have nots. And we have only to look at, again, numbers coming out of the Fed uh, to establish how wide that disparity has been over the past couple of decades. Uh, and it's growing. And wealth disparity uh, lends itself, again, to juror or prospective juror anger. Uh, and I think uh, clients looking to settle cases look at that and recognize that reality. And, and so that's driving some of the value or the cost of, of settlements uh, up. It, it seems like sometimes a jury will, will look at that disparity and, in a sense, use it as an opportunity to shrink that. And and what we're finding, and I think you'll, what you'll uh, you'll be able to talk some more to Kevin, is plaintiffs' attorneys recognize this now, and they're using it to their advantage. And I, I think there's a number of strategies that they're implementing that aren't that aren't helping, but are absolutely contributing to these nuclear verdicts that we're seeing across the country. Uh, Justin, you're absolutely right. The, the, the plaintiff's bar has honed its skill set uh, finely uh, over the past several years. Uh, one of the techniques they're routinely employing in both police cases, and we see this in particular in sexual abuse and molestation cases, is this entire idea of a reptile theory, which uh, uh, is, it does not involve a lizard. Uh, but it does, uh, in fact, uh, involve creating in the, the minds of prospective jurors the idea that something tragic and disturbing and um, an immense failure has taken place to harm an individual, and this could be happening to you. You need to send a message and rectify this so that it doesn't happen to you and your family in the future. And that entire sort of concept has um, has really taken hold, and it's and frankly, the plaintiffs' bar has been very effective in deploying it. Uh, so yeah. I think that's a uh, there's no doubt that they've come a long ways in the past few years in honing that skill set. The the reptile theory was created by two psychologists, and I, I think it was 2009 or 2010. They they wrote a book on this. I, I went on Amazon to see if you could buy it. It's very difficult to get, and it costs over $1,000. So it's absolutely working. They're absolutely using it as a technique. 
And I, I think the defense bar really needs to catch up. Uh, and if we don't soon, it's just going to continue to spiral out of control. Something else that we've we've been hearing about, it's not a new strategy per se, is litigation funding. It's been around for a long time. We're just seeming to hear about it more and more now in a lot smaller cases. I think traditionally it had been used in, in the big class action lawsuits, but now we're seeing it on a much smaller scale. So could you explain that strategy a little bit and what it is and, and why we may be seeing it more? in some of the smaller cases versus where it had been traditionally used in the larger ones? Sure, uh, Justin, we, we are seeing a, a more of that. And you're right, it's not a new phenomenon, but uh, essentially uh, pursuing litigation can sometimes and oftentimes be a lengthy and expensive process. And law firms and plaintiffs uh, sometimes uh, do not have the wherewithal to the financial wherewithal to pursue those. So some years ago, uh, we started to see the emergence of litigation funding firms. These are essentially the suppliers of capital to plaintiffs and specifically plaintiff attorneys to pursue cases that look to be winnable with a good financial outcome uh, at the end. Now, as you pointed out, traditionally that's been on larger cases, large product liability pursuits things like that. But more recently, we've seen that drop down into the smaller and middle-sized cases. A great example of that, uh, by the way, is a, is a firm called Legalist. It was started uh, a few years back by a 23-year-old Harvard dropout uh, by the name of Ava Shang. And she and some of her folks uh, began this uh, operation. And just about a year ago, a little more than that, they secured a $100 million tranche of financing to actually uh, engage on these mid-sized cases and pursue them. And they use a series of algorithms to decide which ones are essentially more likely to be winnable and likely returns on those. And these are attractive investments uh, for venture capital firms, uh, for uh, individuals of uh, ultra high net worth, things like that. But the returns, the expected returns are significant. We even have a firm or two that's gone uh, public. In fact, Burford Capital, uh, a litigation financing firm, uh, debuted on the New York Stock Exchange. Wow. So that's not going away either. It is not. It is not. <laughs> well, I was involved in some discussions with some claims occurring out in California and, you know, there was attempts to, you know, do some tort reform and some, you know, look at those settlements that are happening and like you said kevin around sexual abuse and molestation and it's interesting because you have these huge nuclear verdicts and you know they're you know whether it's a school system or uh you know some other municipality and it turns around that they have to pay this and then they're complaining about their taxes and it's it's also kind of uh, ironic that they're not seeing that these nuclear verdicts are being paid ultimately out of the taxes that they're paying in. So it's it's very interesting what's going on. It is difficult and, and we're always cognizant of the fact that what we're talking about here is taxpayer money ultimately, as you said, Carlene. And so to the extent that, that these are also contributing to uh, you know, underwriting result and, and the cycle of, of a hardening market, you know, it, it, it pays to keep that in mind that ultimately you're actually correct. 
the members of our own community are, are paying these these verdicts. And, you know, so there's a twofold issue there. It's the size of the verdict, but also, you know, finding ways that we can mitigate and limit the exposure or the practices uh, and the behaviors that lead to, to some of these uh, tremendously vertical verdicts and settlements. So I've worked with Genesis for a lot of years and um, one of the things that I have found is that even in a soft market or even in a hard market, your underwriters have been very consistent about what they're looking at and um, pricing your uh, insurance policies and coverages. And even in a soft market, you've tended to be very consistent at what you're looking at. So, Kevin, do you think that these large verdicts and settlements are a trend that's going to go away or do you foresee it you know, continuing to escalate? You know, Carlene, I think everyone is anxious to see what the environment will look like post-COVID. Once we get on the other side of the crisis and our businesses and personalized return to some uh, sense of normalcy. But I don't see anything on the horizon that suggests at this point that we're going to see any lessening or mitigation uh, of these. The, the factors that we've talked about over the last few minutes, the, the jury pools themselves, the, the wealth disparity, the perpetuation of litigation funding support, um, all of those things, I think, are going to still be with us and still driving the results we see here. Um, and I also think that, uh, frankly, uh, in this sort of era of uh, difficult conversations and difficult dialogues uh, between um, family members, friends, business partners, and the like, the sort of level of, of anger and disruption has ramped up quite a bit. And I think that makes it very difficult to, to foresee in the near future, much change in, in the litigation environment and the value of these sort of vertical or nuclear settlements and verdicts. Genesis has always been very consistent in your underwriting tactics and what you're looking at. So do you think you know, looking ahead and looking at, you know, what Justin and I can do as brokers and what our clients and, you know, public entity risk managers can do to try and have some sort of a positive impact. And when there's so many things that are out of their control, you know, what do you think there is that can be done to try and put a little bit more control with within what they're dealing with? Sure, Carly, that's a, that's a great question uh, in a dynamic and changing environment. And, and we know that looking ahead in 21 and 22, you know, our Muni County and other public entity clients are likely to be under significant budget pressures uh, as some of the revenue streams that they've had in the past uh, continue to, to erode as our economy tries to, to recover. So I think uh, a couple of things from a buyer standpoint that will mitigate, lessen, or at least smooth out some of the uh, of the bumps in the road and, and, and the disruptions that we're experiencing now. First of all, uh, let me say that, you know, we tend to measure outcomes in dollars and cents, and we call that the currency of our business. But that's really just sort of how we measure outcomes. It's the scorecard, if you will. I would argue that data and information are king in this marketplace. If you want to get an underwriter's attention and have he or she provide the best terms and conditions that are that can possibly be put on the table, having well-structured uh, data to tell your story is key. So I would say, you know, at this at this time, 
if you're a client and you have some time and capacity to shape up your data to tell your story, now is a great time to do that. Uh, it's just absolutely critical. The second thing I would say is that that frequent and early communication to avoid really unnecessary surprises is a great idea. You know, most underwriters, while they may not give you a quote on something six, eight, or 12 months in advance, they can at least share with you some crystal balling, some what expectations are for the future, and at least a broad sense so that expectations are set and surprises uh, don't, don't creep up two weeks before a renewal. I know that I don't like surprises late in the game, and I'm pretty sure that our clients don't either. And then finally, I would say, because it is a dynamic and changing uh, environment with lots of things moving, capacity commitments and pricing, terms, conditions, availability, all of that, I would advise that clients really give deep consideration to any changes they might be able to both implement and afford in their program to mitigate costs overall, the total cost of risk, if you will. And that may mean changes in retentions, that may mean changes in purchase of uh, limits, that may mean a whole different array of structural considerations that are implemented either on a permanent basis or for a period in order to mitigate some of the costs increases associated with what we're seeing today. So I think those three things in, in general uh, serve clients well. And of course, at the end of this, uh, always work with, with somebody like Alliant who actually has expertise and knowledge in the space and can have those conversations both with the client and with the underwriting community to get the best outcomes. Absolutely. I completely agree. You know, I, I would echo everything Kevin said, and I totally agree that this trend doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. And data is going to be king going forward. It's not just Kevin at Genesis that we hear this from. It's from all the underwriters across the industry. It really is the right time to get your data right. And we talked about it in our last episode. Underwriters are overwhelmed with submissions. The more we can set a submission apart from the others, the better opportunity it's going to have to get a really good op a really good look from that underwriter. So uh, I think, again, if this market hasn't affected you yet as a buyer of liability, it definitely is going to. And Kevin, I just I want to thank you for coming today and, and talking through this because it helps us and it helps our clients and other public sector risk managers tell the story behind the story. It's not easy taking a rate increase to the key stakeholders at your organization. And, but if you have the story behind it, it absolutely softens it a little bit and it, it makes it appear to make more sense. So we appreciate it. Well, Justin, I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, no one, no one enjoys, uh, I know I certainly don't paying higher prices uh, for, for anything. Uh, but I have an, uh, a great deal of confidence in both the brokerage and underwriting community that we can collectively, through really good and frequent communication, manage our way through some relatively difficult challenges for our, our public entity clients. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. And as always, 
Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to In the Public Eye. Thank you for listening. And for more information, go to insurance.alliant.com forward slash in the public eye.